New Testament reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel reading this morning is from Mark chapter 7. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Now when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? He said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must surely die. But you say that if anyone tells father or mother, whatever support you might have had from me is Corbin, that is, an offering to God, then you no longer permit doing anything for a father or mother, thus making void the word of God through your tradition that you have handed on. 
and you do many things like this. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, then do you also fail to understand? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile, since it enters not the heart, but the stomach, and goes out into the sewer? Thus he declared all foods clean. Then he said, it is what comes out of a person that defiles, for it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the gospel of the Lord. Uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these uh, words, this interaction uh, with Jesus, that we would understand how he continues to interact with our own hearts and our lives, calling us to be your people. So meet us uh, in these words we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, week, I watched a documentary about the writer Toni Morrison, who died this past August. And it was a fascinating, uh, really beautiful documentary. If you haven't seen it, I commend it to you. Um, and she says in that documentary of her own writing that she uh, really sought to write as a black woman without regard to the white gaze. Now, that might feel a little startling, right? But that, that's what she wanted to do. In other words, she wanted to write stories in which she could clearly be the reader, the one in view the one listening, the one hearing, the one understanding. And as you watch the documentary unfold frame by frame, novel by novel, interview by interview, you begin to observe this remarkable person who has just personal gravitas that's amazing and um, inviting in so many ways. You discover a depth of personhood that either you're repulsed by because you don't want to be decentered. You don't want your story to not be at the center stage, right? Or you're drawn into it. You, you find yourself thinking or saying, I hope I'm a person like that. I hope I have gravity like that. I think Jesus was a lot like that. He had a gravitas that you either yearned for or you hated. He had a gravitas about himself that either invited you to go further with him, to sort of inquire more deeply, to order your life by the story he's telling, or you were repulsed by him because he was completely deconstructing your understanding of what it means to be a human being in this world. You want what he offers or you resist what he offers. Now, this particular text is a is a moment when there's a discussion, right, between Jesus and the religious leaders who have come from the center of religious power, Jerusalem, right? So these are persons that, uh, that have authority. They have um, responsibilities. They have knowledge of the scriptures, knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures. They understand it, and they have 
built their lives around helping the community of God understand. And I, that's not a bad thing. In some sense, that's what, you know, Chris and Jonathan and I spend our times trying to do, right? Is how do we understand the things God is saying for us that we might be a community that reflects his faithfulness? We live into the story of Scripture. And that's really what the Pharisees were trying to do. But Jesus is upending the way they're living out that story. And he's deconstructing the way they live out that story. And they have come to interrogate him, essentially. How do we know you're from God? You know, we've got these problems with you. The pharisaical gaze over the people of God was destroying them. Not moving them closer to God, but really further away. Jesus simply doesn't care about their gaze. He doesn't care about the gaze of any group or any perspective or any view that doesn't in some way move the realities of God's promised kingdom forward. So let's think about this particular set of interactions. Um, Two things, the law and the human heart, the law and the human heart. So first, the law, right? The delegation observes that Jesus' disciples don't wash their hands before meals. Now, if I were to take a poll and I said, hey, how many of you had mothers or fathers or some caregiver who said, "Um, hey, kids, go wash your hands because we're about to eat, right? Of course they said that. Why? Because they're concerned about hygiene. They don't want you to get sick. They care about those kinds of things. And so there are these sort of rules that we sort of take in, right, culturally. But that's not what's going on here. You know, this is not um, the, uh, the pharisaical police sort of uh, observing the, the hand-washing sign when you go into a restroom at a restaurant, right? And it says what? Employees must wash their hands, which I think actually is probably more to set our minds at ease. This, this is a religious problem. It's become a religious problem. Why? So remember the Jewish, these leaders, the Pharisees, they're students of God's law, right? And so they're they're trying to help the community know how they enact God's law. How do you live into God's law? How do you fulfill it, right? Um, And in Leviticus, God gives certain ritual cleansing practices to the priests. And it's supposed to be a part of their, their worship liturgy, essentially. And they symbolically speak to our need for holiness, to be set apart to God, to be dedicated in our lives to God. Now, at some point over the period of time, right, the religious leaders think, ha, something like this, maybe. You know, these rules for priests, maybe we should extend them to all of the people of Israel. Maybe we should extend it to the entirety of the community uh, because we all need to be symbolically set apart to God, right? So you develop these ways of practicing faith, right, over time. And they're concerned because the disciples aren't washing their hands. Your disciples don't wash their hands. They're not keeping the traditions of the elders. They're not doing those things that show and indicate that you belong, that you're a part of the family. Jesus doesn't immediately take up their question. Instead, he presses into another of their traditions, which is the tradition of Corban, which was a practice of dedicating property or your wealth to God, really sort of uh, putting it in trust for the temple. It's a way of putting something in trust. And when you put something in trust, what happens? It means you lose the ability to control the use of those funds. 
And so the way this would show up is it actually created a kind of loophole that allowed individuals inside of the community to sort of avoid caring for those members of their family that might be closest to them, right? A mother and a father. Or in other words, immediately you begin to understand that this particular tradition can sort of run roughshod over a greater commandment of God that God actually spoke, honor your father and mother. So Jesus sees that, right, this particular problem that's emerging because of their insistence on tradition. He says, essentially, your traditions are undermining that which God really wants for our relationships with one another. So think about the law for just a moment. Theologian Robert Jensen says that the law, the law of God, as we read it in the Old Testament, in particular as you read it, summarized in the sort of Ten Commandments, sort of as this sort of thumbnail sketch of what God wants, right? He says the law is a brief summary of the just and loving society that God desires and that he promises will come when his kingdom comes, right? That's how he reads the law. And so what Jesus is essentially saying here is that your traditions, right, aren't getting you closer to God or this just and loving world. It's just the opposite that's happening, right? Um, The law wasn't an end unto itself, but it was a beginning. And it was given to the enslaved people of Israel so that their own diminished imagination for love and justice and truth and goodness and beauty would be enlarged. And it wouldn't grow merely out of their experiences of diminishment of slavery. That's what the law did. And Jesus is pushing on their understanding of the law and the way they've sought to enact law or not enact law. He's pushing them to see that God is doing something now that's moving his kingdom forward. And we either sort of embrace that which it is. So again, the reflection quote in the beginning of your bulletin today was also from Robert Jensen. And there he says essentially that by, when it comes to the scriptures or it comes to the law, that Jesus acted like he owned it. He acted like he wrote it. There's an authority, there's a gravitas in the way Jesus interacts with the past of Israel, with the past of that which God has done, that updates things. It moves it forward into the future. The law wasn't the end, it was the beginning that helped this enslaved people know what God wanted, what he desired, the kind of world he imagined. Now second, the human heart. So Jesus does circle back to the original concern, which just has to do with the purity and the clean laws, right? In other words, how do I know I belong to this set-apart people of God, right? What are the rules or the ways in which I can know I belong? So he circles back to this problem, and he wants to address it a little bit differently. It's not about washing hands. The real question Jesus says is internal, right? Uh, he agrees that defilement is a problem, right? uncleanliness is a problem. The brokenness of our world is a problem, but it isn't ritual defilement that is the problem. The problem is the human heart. He pushes this conversation into the weightier questions of the ethical demands of the kingdom of God, right? The problem of fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, you know, pride and folly, and we could probably just keep adding words. Racism, bigotry, selfishness, economic injustice and inequality. We could just keep going on 
with all of the different ways that human beings have carved up our world that do not reflect God's promised kingdom. Jesus names behaviors and practices that don't fit any notion of God's just and loving community, of the kingdom that he's actually bringing near in Jesus. So if you just rehearse, right, why are we having a problem with Jesus right now? It's because Jesus has shown up in the world and he's shown love to all the wrong people. <laughs> you know, Art and Darcy's testimony and story this morning of their work in Japan is a beautiful illustration of that, right? That Jesus has shown up in our world in vulnerability, radical love, radical acceptance for those who were not previously loved, were not previously accepted, were not experiencing God's vulnerable compassion toward them. Jesus doesn't fit the world that we carve out. These are all communal sins, by which I mean just simply this. You only experience these sins in the context of other people, right? You, you experience these sins in the context of other people. They're expressed in our relationships with strangers, with friends, with brothers, sisters, neighbors, husbands, wives, children, in the workplace, with colleagues, civically in the public market space, right? Politically and in economic life. These are sins that show up in relationship. Now, you read a list like this, and almost instinctively, we get caught up in the weeds, right? You want to know, well, where do we draw the lines, right, around sexual ethics? Where do we draw the line around whatever, right, economic justice? Where do we draw the line around, and just fill in the blank, right? We immediately want to get into some ethical debate about exactly where the lines are drawn. But here's the thing. While we could argue about what constitutes folly or foolishness, no one wants to be accused of foolishness. And none of us in the room today wants to be the recipient of someone else's foolish act, right? We could talk about where you draw the lines on abuse of power, corporately, personally, sexually, but none of us want to be so abused. We have, a far, more, we have far more in common with one another than we sometimes think. The religious insider, the religious outsider, the Christian, the outside person who's not yet a Christian or thinking about Jesus even. We, we have commonality. Why? Because we are born into the same world and we have the same longings for justice and goodness and truth. God has built us for the same world, the same glory of that world that's characterized by a world and characteristics and practices of justice, goodness, and truth. But here's our problem. When you look out on our world today, or you even reflect back on your own story this week, as we had opportunity to do when we were taking a moment to confess our sins, what did you notice? That we struggle to stop the rising tide of these ethical problems and dilemmas in our own lives, in the lives of our world, and collectively, in the way we live life together, right? We don't do a great job. And the history of humanity, for all of our education, for all of our understanding, for all of our know-how, has yet to sort of lower the bar so that we find ourselves more and more in a world of justice. We participate on both sides of this equation. Sometimes we're individuals and we find ourselves enacting some feature 
of injustice toward another. And sometimes we find ourselves on the line in which we're recipients of the injustice of our world and the harm that is done in our world. But we are persons who live on both sides of the equation. I am done unto and I do unto. That's who I am. And that's who you are. And Jesus is now addressing and engaging this fundamental problem that we see in our world, the deep brokenness that is rampant, that is evident everywhere. And he points out that our traditions, even our laws it's themselves, right, haven't stopped them. Why? Because these social problems, these personal problems, these family problems, these neighborhood problems, these vocational problems arise out of a deeper place in the heart. There's a spiritual connection to the core of our being. Jesus points out that these problems are the overflow of the human heart. And then he gives us a little potty humor, right? A little story, right? Kids love this. You know, a little potty humor, right? Don't you know that what you eat just passes through and on into the sewer, into the toilet? Don't you know this? It doesn't go into your heart. It goes into the toilet. And then Mark adds that little tag that, you know, Jesus is showing us that all foods are clean, right? So he's writing principally probably to a Gentile audience at this point in the stage, and he's reminding them of some of these things, of of, of their way of living, what, what marks their inclusion in God's people or what doesn't mark their inclusion among God's people. But the main thing is this, that the ethical and the moral challenges that we face in our world, the racism, the hatred of all sorts, Uh, All of the debates about sexual ethics and economics and so on, these things arise out of the human heart. Dorothy Sayers said that, or defined sin as a deep interior dislocation of the human heart, by which she simply meant that if you want to understand sin, don't just look at sins. Take a deep dive into your own soul, into your own heart, and understand your dislocation from God. The heart in the Bible is a metaphor for that which speaks of the core of a person, right? It's it's that space, that inner sense of being out of which we love and we desire and we dream and we hope and we long and we yearn and we aim our lives in some trajectory of a projected and desired good life. The heart is a compass, It sort of moves you in some direction so that your behavior, your interactions with God and with other people show up in a certain kind of way. And when Jesus looks at our world, he says the problem isn't sort of having more laws about all these things. It is the human heart, ultimately, that is the great problem. The reason you don't see and experience the world of God's justice and his love is related to the heart, not the food we eat, the hands we wash, or the wealth that we think we dedicate to God. Now, this is hard because it means what? That when I look at my life, I can't just sort of lean into the ways in which I feel a victim to my circumstances. And when I look at the world and the problems of our neighborhood or the problems of Philadelphia or the United States or politics 
or the world scene, the radical inequalities that exist in our world, world hunger, I can't just look at someone else or some other group and sort of articulate the problem as out there. But instead, Jesus is pushing me to say, no, no, no. Draw the line in here. It's the dislocation of your heart, Tuck. It's the dislocation of our hearts. He's not talking here about this modern notion of getting in touch with your inner self, right? I'm all into that, by the way. I think it's a really great idea to spend time in contemplative reflection and try to understand yourself and uh, you know, mindfulness training and whatnot. These are really great things and practices to do. But Jesus isn't merely talking about having greater self-understanding. Jesus says, you need more than self-understanding. You need the touch of God. You need the touch of God on your heart. You need him to subdue your stubborn will. You need him to melt your frozen heart. Because unless he does that, unless he connects with you at that level, you will continue to live out of the zero-sum game of our world. And you will be one who grasps and takes and steals and and you know, holds on to rather than one who gives love because you've not experienced the radical reception of the love, the acceptance, and the vulnerability of Jesus. The problem is our hearts. So I want you to think back to this week. Where was the kingdom of justice and love absent? I just pulled up the Citizen app this morning, and I thought, okay, let's just see where it happened last night. Citizen app alerted me to a break-in at 48th and Locust. It alerted me to a police chase in the Fairmount neighborhood. It alerted me to a man injured in an assault, shots fired at a car. And then there are all the other things that the Citizen app doesn't alert me to, right, that aren't overtly criminal. Selfishness, hoarding, competitiveness in the workplace that diminishes another so that you can get ahead. Just on and on, you can just imagine and think of all of the ways that brokenness showed up in our world this week. There's another school shooting in California. I mean, just, we, we just go on and on about all of these things, wars in places in our world. I mean, horrible things being done to human beings. Things actually done and good that was left undone. We confess that this morning. How did you see it in our world as you read the news, as you talked to a neighbor? Or maybe more personally, pull it into yourself even. Where did any of these ethical problems rear their head in your life this week? Lust, anger, folly, lying, envy. Where did it show up in your life and inside of your relationships this week? See, all of these problems, Jesus is pointing out, they flow from a misalignment of our hearts. We're not tied in to a God who loves us, and so we're always trying 
to get love some other place. We're trying to get an identity in some other place. We're trying to discover a, a center of gravity in some location. St. Augustine famously observed that our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, O Lord. What a beautiful statement just to sit with for a moment and reflect on. What does that restlessness look like in your life, in your real life, you know? What do you chase? What do you think will make a bitter life sweet? What do you think will sort of bring a little bit of joy to your life? What do you think? Just fill in the blank, right? What, if you don't get it or it were denied you, would lead you to a place of despair? What are you chasing? What's your vision of the good life, of the necessary life, of a happy life, of a fulfillment? St. Augustine, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, O Lord. At this stage in the story that Mark is telling about Jesus' life, all Jesus does here is he exposes the deeper problem, right? He just reveals the deeper problem of our restless hearts. But ultimately, Jesus is in our world. Why? To, to reach into our restless hearts so that we become individuals and the church becomes a community that is deeply touched by God's vulnerable love for us in Jesus Christ. So we awaken to what it would mean to interact with God's gaze, not as someone who's meeting up with us to, to condemn us, to, to show us up, to sort of put us in our right place in some angry, deforming kind of way, but rather a God who has shown up in our world to lift us, to raise us, so that we begin to enact our own humanity differently, the way we live toward God and the way we live toward one another, so that the church actually becomes the foretaste of God's coming kingdom. That's the picture that Jesus offers us here in this particular interaction with the Pharisees. This morning before worship, Art and Darcy were sharing a more extended version of their story uh, up in the library. And it was just a beautiful time to hear about their call to mission in Oasa, Japan with Big Morning Farm. And you can't listen to them share the story and not be infected by it, honestly. You, you just start smiling at all the good things that are happening and the, the way they ended up in the work and the way they ended up with the farm and the people they're meeting and just the desire, their beautiful mission statement to heal and restore through the radical love, acceptance, and vulnerability of Jesus. And when they said that, I thought, yes. Yes. And then I asked myself the question, how, how do I become a person who shows up in the moments that I live in the world like that, offering and extending the radical love, the radical acceptance, and the radical vulnerability of Jesus? And the answer that Jesus gives us here is it is only as he touches your heart with the same it is only as you touches your heart with the same and you begin to recognize the gravity of Jesus' presence that he has shown up in the world to absolutely liberate you so that we live in his likeness in the world while we wait the coming of his kingdom. And we live before his gaze and not anyone else's gaze and we show his love to the world.
because we're experiencing his love in the world, in our own stories, in our own lives. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we continue to think about these interactions that Jesus had and maybe the interactions that we've had this week and our own struggle to know how we belong to your people or if we want to belong to your people at all, that you would help us to discern in Jesus the beauty, the beauty of his life lived, the beauty of what he reveals to us about your love for us. And would you awaken a yearning in our hearts to be so loved and to be so known and to so live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.